Hello and welcome to my show, America Can We Talk? I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Today we're going to talk about Brexit in UK and Boris finally wins. Second, we're going to talk about the debt ceiling budget deal in Washington. We have a great guest joining us, former congressman and PhD in economics, Dave Bratt. Third, food stamp cuts coming, what it means. And the fourth story for today is in New York City, assaulting police officers. Why is this okay? And finally, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome again to America Can We Talk. We probably saw in the news that Boris Johnson uh, has won the vote, the UK leadership race with a conservative party. And tomorrow in the UK, he will be sworn in, I believe it is gonna be tomorrow, as prime minister. Basically, he's in this position because he spoke up for the people of the UK who voted in favor of Brexit, which is, again, the British exit from the European Union. And just so you recognize the, the power and goodness of tenacity, the people of the UK voted back on June 23rd in 2016, over three years ago, to Brexit, to for them to leave the European Union, the United Kingdom, to no longer be part of the uh, European Union. That Union, European Union has uh, 28 European country members. What's happened between the date of that vote and today is an ongoing tussle, really, between the ruling class in uh, the UK, the people who are members of parliament, who simply did uh, took a variety of steps trying to prevent this from actually occurring. Even after the vote occurred, there had to be negotiations between uh, the UK and the European Union about various terms related to their departure uh, from the European Union. And as those negotiations went on, uh, there were just, and they tried to get some bill passed in the parliament, several members of parliament, in fact, numerous members of parliament, just gave the, the people really a hard time, argued with them about the terms of it, just kind of get, uh, kept getting in the way of the actual Brexit vote and uh, of the people's uh, vote. So finally now, Boris Johnson takes control. He'll be prime minister tomorrow in England. He's gonna move that forward. And I wanted to encourage you, if you didn't listen to my show the day, and I can't even tell you when it was, but uh, we had a, a candidate on who was running from England for the um, a position on the, uh, the EU Parliament in case Brexit never happened. He wanted to be uh, a member of that, of that Parliament, and he went through talking about all of the parties, like the Conservative Party in England, or really in England, it's now called the Brexit Party. They actually have a political party surrounding the idea of Brexit. They had an argument in countries, all numerous countries are members of the European Union, the same basic idea. We want our sovereignty back. We want our country back. We don't want to be part of a kind of a ruling elite mindset that the European Union had become. Sounds a lot like America. So uh, congratulations to Boris Johnson. Very exciting. He's going to uh, take charge. He promises Brexit will be done. And actually, at this point, the, it has to be done by October 31st of this year. That is their deadline. It has to be done by then or 
they simply leave the UK simply leaves the European Union without a deal. They just get out. No one really wants that. They want to have a deal that relates to trade and other important items, but they at least have a deadline in mind. If they can't get these recalcitrant members of the uh, parliament to step up and honor what the vote was of the people in um, throughout the UK, then they're out, they're out of um, the European Union anyway. So congratulations, Boris Johnson. And that, my friends, is today's first five. As I mentioned at the start of the show, we're going to be interviewing today. We have online, I hope we have online, uh, a gentleman who's been on the show before. He's a former United States Congressman, Dave Bratt. Um, he represented uh, a Northern District of Virginia from 2014 to 2019, um, or he, um, through end of 2018. Um, and he is the one who became, this isn't the only reason he's famous, but, but he became famous because he defeated in a primary Eric Cantor, who was at the time the majority leader in the Republican Party. So Dave Bratt really had a kind of a feisty um, campaign uh, back in 2014 and won that seat, and he served in Congress for four uh, years, or two terms. He now is with Liberty University, and he is the, uh, the new dean of their School of Business. That was as of January this year. He's also a PhD in economics. And um, I wanted, the reason I want to talk with him today is about what's happening in Washington. This uh, budget deal was apparently reached uh, between uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, um, and I guess factions of the U.S. House and apparently with the Trump administration, but a budget deal that many conservatives are unhappy about. It seems like it's, it's a budget buster. Um, it, it requires raising the debt ceiling. And I wanted to get the impressions and thoughts of someone who's both an economist, um, a wonderful member of the U.S. Congress, uh, and now the Dean of Business um, of the Business School at Liberty University. So, hello, uh, Dr. Bratt. Hey, Debbie, and a good friend of Debbie Georgiata, so thank you. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> I'm so glad you could join us, and just really, I'm so grateful you could join us. And, you know, I want to start with, I just think this is, an, and I will tell you, by the way, he says a good friend. When he was in Congress, we did an event in our home for him here in Dallas, just because we love, I mean, all the way from Texas, we could see in Washington who was a leader, an outspoken leader for conservative ideas in Congress, and Congressman Bratt definitely was that. So we were very honored to, um, to host him in our home and try to, support his campaign so but back to where we are and I just love that you're also an economist we have a deal that apparently has been struck between the Republicans uh, the Republican majority in the Senate and uh, it appears the president may be on board with it a budget deal but I would start first with this about our US budget or and our and our overall economic health or lack thereof I think our but our debt in this country is something like 22 trillion is that correct yep yep right on the money right on the money so to speak okay 22 trillion so when Congress <coughs> wants to uh, raise the the debt and I want to say something about the debt limit I want to say this to uh, our happy listeners you know we have credit cards everybody has credit cards if we get up to the limit of our credit card and we you know we need more credit we really don't have the ability to just contact the credit card company and say, hey, you know what, I don't have any money and I can't pay my debt, but could you please increase my credit limit? I might be able to borrow money somewhere else and try to pay off that credit card, but the U.S. government doesn't work like that. This $22 trillion debt we have, the way in which Congress raises its credit limit is just to pass a new credit limit into law. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, no, that's accurate. And, you know, per person, it's about 50 
$8,000 of debt per person per worker, which is the more relevant measure. It's double that because it's about 150 million workers in the U.S., so it's 100000 in debt. And then on top of that, we're leaving off Medicare and Social Security and all the unfunded liabilities. That's $100 trillion. So you can multiply those by five, right? So instead of 100000 per worker, it's 500000 per worker. Uh, we're running behind. Our promises to pay are huge. We don't have the money. And the main problem with the debt, and this is the irony of ironies, right? The liberals are full of compassion and love and care for everybody, and they drive Subarus and all things like that. <laughs> uh, but they're racking up this debt on the next generation of kids. They supposedly care for the kids, right? So their values and virtues, they say we care, but if you look at the specifics, the health care costs in the country are going up, the economic growth went down under the Democrats, the debt goes up, and so the trillion-dollar deficit we're going to have this year, in one year, a trillion dollars, right, we're spending more than we're bringing in, even with economic growth doing pretty well under President Trump, that trillion deficit is going to be paid for by the next generation. So we're spending, we're getting all the goodies right now, and that's the budget, right? All the goodies in the budget we're getting, present generation. The next generation is going to have to go to work, get their paycheck, work hard, probably have lower economic growth and less opportunity, pay higher taxes, and pay all their household bills, and then pay off all the goodies we spent this year. And that's the true pain of the debt no one wants to talk about because no one's ever had to pay it off, right? No generation in U.S. history has ever had to pay off this tremendous avalanche that's come and due. And that's without mentioning Medicare and Social Security and all those becoming insolvent within a decade. And that's not a prediction. That's math. Just go look up the Medicare, you know, uh, board report and the, and the Social Security Board of Trustees report. And it's all right there. It is. It's so troubling, so alarming. And I do want to, uh, those are real basic terms. And I was going to, I meant to say at the start, pretend I only took economics 101 in college. And so, uh, and you're an economist. And so I want to just do some basic things. One is the debt being the total amount of money we owe, like your family, maybe have a debt for your mortgage, or maybe you, you borrowed money for some other reasons, but you have an overall debt. But the deficit is the amount of money that you spend every year more than you anticipate taking in. Is that, that's right. 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 So you just right. said that's right. It's like a bathtub. The debt, the debt is the total level of the water. So you, <laughs> all the water in the bathtub, and the deficit is the amount of water you added this year to okay. the debt. Okay. Right. So you just said one trillion in deficit this year, and that right. is as against twenty-two trillion, the entire debt, which has obviously accumulated over decades and gone up and down various points. But that is that seems extremely that percentage seems uh, scary, alarming, and and is, are we in new territory getting that high? Yeah, no, I mean it, it, in gross terms, you know, it's the the GDP is about twenty trillion, and the debt's twenty two trillion, so you're hundred percent GDP to debt. And the the more worrisome part is it's just built in the cake right now, right? I mean, we're going to have trillion-dollar deficits. There's no fiscal discipline in, in the picture whatsoever going forward. And then for the people at home reading, you know, go out to Politico and Roll Call and The Hill. Those are the political rags up in D.C., very leftist. And a month ago or six months ago, Trump, the White House puts in a budget, right? They're not in charge of the budget. Congress is. Congress is Article One. Congress in is in charge of spending. And so a month or two ago, the White House puts out a preliminary budget, you know, with Mick Mulvaney and all the smart people. And the, all the headlines, 
Trump, ruthless, cuts, terrible, austerity. He's going he's gonna to ruin your life. Go to the same papers today. Politico's headline today is Deficit Don, they're calling him. They're blaming the spending on him. He put in a White House budget that cuts spending, and then he's got to make a deal with Pelosi, who's Article One Congress, right, the House. It's her budget that has all the increased spending, and he's got to compromise with that. And then Schumer in the Senate okay, puts this- tremendous pressure. And, and the, in, a, in a nutshell, the Republicans have to fight for the defense budget. The press will never ask Democrats what they want on the defense side, and of course they <laughs> they won't say a word about it. And then on the spent on the, all the rest, right? The, the the Republicans are weak because they give in to this dollar for dollar, right? If we do a dollar defense, we're going to give the Democrats a dollar to blow on whatever they want. And believe me, they got a list that goes on forever. We're going to get to the Democrats list in a moment, but I want to just ask one other question, which is a little bit uh, outside of the immediacy of the numbers. I think that many Americans, they hear members of Congress give speeches. They hear other organizations speak up about the danger of the debt. And they see that the debt goes up and up and politicians come home during their uh, time in their in their districts and give speeches and say, don't worry about it. You know, uh, we're going to get on top of it. It's terrible. We can't have this debt. And then they go back and they keep spending money. And it seems to people, ultimately, I think, that maybe all the alarmism or all the concern being expressed about the debt is hyperbolic, is hyperbole, that really there's no reason to be so concerned because really, you know, after all the concern expressed, nothing seems to happen. So tell me, Congressman and PhD in economics, uh, Dave Bratt, what is the harm to America if we just keep increasing the debt, increasing the debt? Is it true that just nothing will happen? So why not just keep increasing it? No, no, you'll run into a brick wall, and the brick wall's coming. And, and one of the easiest ways, you just go look up the Social Security when it becomes insolvent. And it, it, it's not a D.C. cut, right? In D.C., when something grows by 2%, they call it a cut, right? Yep. So it's it's still huge. It grows by 2%. And they say, well, we wanted it to grow at 4 and it's only growing at 2 so that's a cut. So that's D.C. speak. When Social Security runs out of money, right, it, when, it, when it's insolvent in about 10 years, there'll be a 20% haircut or clip to benefits of all people on Social Security. And then the debt can't rise enough to pay for that. And you're already in debt, and you're already, the people are already constrained, so they don't want a tax increase, and that's when it's going to hit. And the same with Medicare and Medicaid and everything else. We've, we've blown through all the trust fund money. We blew through all the savings money that was in the piggy bank. We played every trick in the in the book. Uh, we've been massaging the data. We've been making up stuff for two decades, <clears throat> and it's all coming due. And it's all going to be on the next generation. And the kids don't know because K to 12 education has dumbed them down so bad in economics. They won't teach them economics because otherwise you'd be a conservative. <laughs> and so that's, that's true. it. That's true. Otherwise, you'd be a concern. That's a funny line. Right. Very, very true. Okay, but back to this, what if we default? I saw that uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, Senate um, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, was interviewed in one of the weekend news shows. And when he was asked about what are we going to do, we have this we have this budget battle, we have this enormous debt, you know, we need to raise the debt ceiling uh, to accommodate our spending. And his answer was, his very first words out of his mouth as well, no matter what, we're not going to default. We're never going to default on a loan. We're not going to default. And so what I want to get at with you is, isn't that kind of an um, 
a hollow victory or something? I mean, we're going to borrow more money so we don't really, we, we don't, we aren't technically in default on all the, on our loans, but we're not fixing anything. That's, that's not much of a victory, right? No, they're just using that language as, as bailout language because they don't want to stand up. And it, it, you can tell they're not serious, right? Because if the Republicans were serious, you have to start educating the American people a year or two ahead of time. And so they know they got the 2020 election. They don't want to be in this spending budget battle because it, it, it's like asking the American people, do you want to eat spinach? And the answer is no, right? We want all of our consumer goods right now. And so the Republicans are in a tougher spot, right, because it's kind of like unilateral disarmament. The Democrats say yes to everything. The lobbyists walk into a Democrat's office and say, can we have this? And they say yes. They walk into a Republican's office, and the Republican goes, well, i got to study that. And then the lobbyist <laughs> takes that as a no. And so guess who gets all the campaign contributions? The right. one who says yes. So the Democrats are in a total, you know, winning political enterprise because they say yes to everything, but they're bankrupting the country in the meantime. The Republicans try to be principled, but at the end of the day, they're, they're running against unprincipled party right now, right? And the, 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 the Pelosi, when Pelosi appears as a conservative, you know you got problems, yeah. right? She's a conservative strand in her own party compared to some of the others. And so I think Elizabeth Warren, if you add up her policy prescriptions, I think they add up to $100 trillion in new spending over 10 years, I if I have that right. right. So you can look that up. Yeah. I want to get to her briefly because I saw Elizabeth Warren is trying to take the high road or claiming she's taking the high road, the serious road. She understands we're heading for a fiscal cliff. We're heading for chaos. We have to do some, some fixes. But so she she's trying to be kind of I'm the sane voice in economics on the left, because after all, I have a plan. And uh, to your point, her plan involves massive increased spending. I believe she's one of the people who signed on, at least in principle, the Green New Deal. She wants free college sure. for everybody. She wants to have the um, she, she wants to have the minimum wage. You know, I mean, and there's no reason if it can be fifteen dollars, it can't. Why couldn't it be like one hundred million dollars? It could be anything. You just say a number. But. She has a plan, and she's trying to sound conservative, but what she really is doing, she's arguing for massive new spending, and I don't know yet what her uh, tactic is, but and if you're familiar with her plan at all, what is the way she's paying for that new spending? Do you have any idea in her plan? No, it has to be a massive tax increase, right? So if she's got $100 trillion in new spending over 10, that's $10 trillion more per year. I mean, and it's you'd have to double your taxes, <clears throat> and she doesn't want to say that. And then the press will never ask <clears throat> them a question. And unfortunately, the Republican leadership gets the same benefit. So if you if you go, go Google a few weeks ago, if you Googled the budget under Roll Call, The Hill, Politico, all the political rags up there, they'll have articles on the budget without ever mentioning the budget number. And they certainly won't tell you the debt, and they certainly won't tell you that the kids are going to pay for the debt. And those are the most simple points you can make, right? What is the budget? How big is it? Uh, how much is the deficit? Who's going to pay for it? And you'll never hear reporting on that because that is the Democrat advantage politically. They spend. They promise you goodies. They're bankrupt in the country. Everybody knows it. And uh, no one wants to stand up and lead because it's, it's a rough business up there. It is a rough business up there. I was going to put up, I have my incredibly wonderful producer, Matt. I sent him a chart. 
I actually think I put this chart up a few weeks ago in some other discussion we had, but basically it's about where our budget goes. Because if you look yep. online, I'll mention one thing about this while Matt is getting it, but if you look online, you can see a lot of uh, headlines, and then you know how someone puts a headline up and then all the echo chamber puts the same headline, and they were saying, the headline was essentially Republicans uh, demand military spending, 51% uh, of the federal budget goes for the military, and uh, they weren't even happy with that. And, uh, you know, absurdity. So now, Matt the Wonderful, if we have that, that uh, chart to put up, the military spending in this country, defense spending, is at 15%. 15. Right. That's right. <laughs> okay. So yeah. What they mean, when they say that, they mean 50% of discretionary spending. And so what they don't want to talk about is three-fourths of the budget, which is mandatory spending. And it's called mandatory because it's mandatory. Because it, you don't have any choice in it. You have to pay everybody that gets 65, gets Social Security, Medicare. If you hit certain criteria, Medicaid, all interest on the debt, that's mandatory payments. That's over two-thirds of the budget now. So the press just leaves that off on the side, and no one will ever talk about reforming that, and that's, that's the budget buster. It used to be a, you know, one-fourth of the budget. Now it's approaching three-fourths of the budget. And you're right, defense is not 50%. It's 15%, right. Yeah, and there's three quarters of the budget, the federal budget being mandatory spending on programs like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, all sorts of other uh, marketplace subsidies, right. safety net programs. And so when you say mandatory, yep. it means you mean that it's written into the underlying legislation that either created or perpetuated these programs that Congress would have to change the language, the law, and the underlying programs in order to be permitted not to fund it. Is that right? Right, exactly. Right. And, and who's going to bravely step up and change the underlying Social Security law? Oh, <laughs> yeah, no, nobody. That's, that's the problem, right? <clears throat> and you can reform those programs in ways to incentivize it, to make people healthier and live longer and right, turn it all into smart stuff, but no one wants to do that. Because if you threaten the, just the giveaway machine, you're in trouble. Sure are. So I have one last question for you. It's a really big one, and, and, I, uh, and I don't know whether there's one simple answer, but if you really had, if you, a PhD in economy, you're a PhD economist, you've been a member of Congress, you're, I also mentioned, you also went to have a seminary degree. I just love that about you. It's a kind of a well-rounded thinker, but uh, what would you do if you could be in charge in Congress and say, we have to get the federal debt under control? What is the reasonable thing that could be put in place, I'm not saying overnight, but over years, to get America back to fiscal sanity? Is there even a plan out there talking about that? Or if not, what would you do if you could create one? Not really. I mean, the, the, the real problem, and that's why I'm so happy to be at Liberty University right now, and that the students here and the faculty are just unbelievable, uh, and just what a positive place to be. But the, the key is on the side we're not talking about, which is the economic growth side. And what you have to do there is reform K-12 to education and throw it upside down, and then reform higher education, which is just a disaster. You know, over half the growth in, in university spending is they got a dean for every new crazy idea under the sun now. You're not paying for education. You're paying for all these sub crazy support services and fancy buildings and, you know, et cetera. And so we need to get back to the basics in this country. So if I was in charge, that's what I would focus on. I, we, in Liberty University, we're making deals with IBM right now, and kids are getting these orange badges and certificates in Oracle and IBM. They're going to get jobs that are doing great, you know, train them in technologically. 
And uh, every, we ought to be offering that in every city and every county and every state across the country. And if you get kids productive, they go out and make a ton of money. There's no upper bound on growth, right? The poor have been miseducated by the left into thinking that there's this rich class and then everyone else is, right. is consigned to being in poverty. That's absolutely false. Everybody in the country can get rich. If you produce and are productive and your kid gets smart and gets a badge from some company and gets a skill, they're rich. Period. End of end of debate, and uh, it's that simple. But conservatives are not making that case. We're not reforming education, and the left owns it. Right? They own all the teachers' unions, so it's very hard to do that. But eventually, uh, the American people are going to get so upset uh, with a with a status quo, they're going to demand it. On your, this is a great uh, note. I wish to wrap this up. You said something earlier about the idea that about the American people uh, and what they understand and more people in Washington helping to inform the American people. I actually do think if the American people realized how extremely out of balance the federal budget is in Washington, how unbelievably irresponsible it is to keep on creating and funding programs and growing programs that are fiscally uh, irresponsible, that we are we have Medicare is going around on money and Social Security is going around on money. If you had more people tuned into that and willing to put pressure on their member of Congress to say, I want you to stop passing these budget-busting budgets. I want you to be fiscally responsible. Because right now there is really no political consequence for members of Congress who, can, even on the, on the conservative side, they may have different spending priorities and they may be more responsible and they may not want to have uh, lavish programs that increase dependency, but they don't really want to get in and fight. We got to cut this, cut this, cut this, because it's, there seems to be no political consequence. In fact, it's only political downside to them. I'd love to have the American people understand more about everything you just said and more about your idea about kids from K through 12 and in college learning economic responsibility, learning economics, getting themselves trained and ready for the world. Because I do think that one big piece of this is the American people being more alert to it and letting Congress uh, know you've got to stop this. We actually, we're, you know, we're not going to keep electing you unless you get on top of this. So uh, last shot, any yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah, no, you're right on the money, and it, it, it will be unbelievable that Republicans are going to vote for this budget or allow enough votes, right? Leadership may let a few people vote no, but they will arrange so that there are enough votes to increase spending by $300 billion, have a oh. trillion-dollar deficit. And if people really want to understand what's going on, I mean, why did we not repeal Obamacare, right? Because the big money and the lobbyists are so good the lobbyists are really good when you never hear of them. It sounds a little conspiracy-minded, but that's what we're dealing with, right? When you really got good lobbyists, how can you promise as a party to repeal something for seven years and then get in power and leave Obamacare in place? Yes, right? yes. There's only one reason, because the powers that be and the money interests up there dominate leadership on both sides. And then if you want to be on committees, you listen to leadership, and we didn't repeal uh, Obamacare. We still have, you know, many socialized health care. Costs are going through the roof. There's no price system. There's no free market system at, at play at all. Uh, so the people can shop and you can see the price of your product you're buying. And uh, it's a political failure. And so hold the people responsible when you say you're going to repeal. And if they don't, don't vote them back in office. I am so for that. Uh, Congressman Bratt, Dr. Bratt, thank you so very much for joining me today. I hope we can do this again sometime soon. Thank you so much for all your insights. Anytime. Thank you, Debbie. Great show. Have a great day. You See too. you all. Thank you, sir.
Okay, this guy, I'm very sorry, he's not in Congress anymore. He was just a, a stellar member of Congress. And to have a combination of the uh, heart for his faith, he has a, you know, he's a, has a seminary degree, a PhD in economics, and a member of Congress. He's just been stellar. But Liberty University is blessed to have him, and I love to have his insights, um, really, about what, why, how this looks inside Congress, what's happening, why we can't do the things that I would say many conservatives assume Congress should be able to do, and it, which it includes at least fighting back against endless increases on the debt ceiling. But I guess that's for next time. Sounds like President Trump is going to sign this bill. So we'll just move forward and ha we'll have to have this discussion again. This bill will. One reason people are saying maybe Trump is going to go for it is that once this is in place, if it does get signed, we kind of put off the whole issue of the debt ceiling and the budget until after the next election cycle. And I guess people get very concerned when the election is coming up in 2020 about what, you know, they don't want to be the one who stood up and said no on spending, said yes on cutting spending. They don't want to do that now, but this will get them past the 2020 elections, not just the president, but all the members of the U.S. House, and at least one-third of the Senate who's ever up is up for re-election in 2020. So there you have it. But these economics are there are people issues, folks. They're not just numbers and, and, and dollars and cents. They're people issues about the safety and security and stability of our society when you have a stable economy, which we are continuing to disrupt as we continue out of control spending. And that was Congressman Dave Brett. The next thing I wanted to turn to today, and I have to tell you folks, I, I, I struggle every time I'm getting ready for the show to hone down the number of stories I'd like to get to uh, and the time I have. But I do want to talk a little bit about some news that came out of Washington today. And it, it very much relates to our previous topic and has to do with the proposal for uh, a, a new rule, essentially, that is going to cut um, people out of the food stamp program. And so as you, if you didn't know this, the Department of Agriculture is actually the one that administers the food stamp program. And uh, the Trump administration proposed a rule yesterday, uh, no, today, I guess it was, to reduce unwarranted access to food stamps. And the basic thing they're saying is that people apply for different kinds of, of government programs. And one of them, one of those particular programs, is the um, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, T-A-N-F, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. So once people are eligible for that, then they turn to food stamps, or now we, we don't call it the, the um, benefit, it used to be called food stamp, now it's called SNAP. And the idea is essentially that states have been deciding that people, they don't put applicants who are trying to become eligible to get food stamps, or SNAP, they don't subject those applicants to the program requirements of of food stamps or SNAP, and instead they say, well, if they were eligible for TANF, then we're going to call them eligible for food stamps. So it's going to cause the states that administer the food stamp money, the SNAP program, to reassess the eligibility of everybody in the program. Or uh, so, so many people are very nervous about this, and these are estimates kind of pulled out of thin air, but estimates is may cut at least 3.1 million people out of the food stamp program if they're actually going to be analyzed, each applicant analyzed by the state, 
the, the, all 50 states, analyzed by the state about whether or not they are eligible for food stamps. They meet the eligibility requirements. And, you know, it's an interesting thing because there's been an ongoing discussion uh, in America about whether we should cut back on the SNAP program, cut back on food stamps. And anytime there's proposals, of course, there's a lot of caterwauling from the American left about this is so unfair, this is cruel, it's mean, this is terrible. Uh, and then people on the right saying, hey, a lot of people are getting food stamps who don't need them. I'll just tell you two uh, competing headlines and just getting ready for show today's show, and then I want to tell you a story. But the two competing headlines, one related to food stamp recipients saying six, and this is a headline, and they had tons of data to back this up, six in ten able-bodied food stamp recipients do not work at all. Six in ten able-bodied food stamp recipients don't work at all. And, and one thing to remind you about is, you know, we did uh, welfare reform under President Clinton, I think it was 1996 or so, and when he announced the big, you know, uh, welfare um, reform, and he was basically saying it was to incentivize people who were receiving welfare um, to look for jobs, to actually potentially work. And so the welfare reform bill happened. One of the ways in which uh, that was presented, um, the program was presented when Clinton did a big announcement in the White House lawn, I think it was on, on welfare on, on the lawn, he had a person come up and speak, a former welfare enrollee from Arkansas named Lily Hardin, who basically talked about the idea how great it was in her life when she decided instead of just living off of welfare, which she had been doing for a long time, she actually began working. And she just talked about the joy of being self-sufficient, the joy of self-reliance, of earning her way. It was, it was really kind of an emotional presentation. But So that headline, and I'll just tell you, just, just rough numbers. In the year 2000, 17 million people were defend, dependent on food stamps. In the year 2000, 17 million, which cost America about $17 billion annually. By 2016, enrollment had reached 44 million. So in that 16 years, it went from 17 million to 44 million in 2016, exploding to costs of $70 billion a year. So that's one headline, obviously carrying the implication of a lot of able-bodied people who receive uh, food stamps and don't you know, aren't working, aren't even, aren't doing anything to to earn money. Another contrasting headline, just to tell you how the left always comes at this, is uh, a headline in Illinois: seventy-seven percent in the state of Illinois, seventy-seven percent of able-bodied, childless food stamp recipients are at risk as feds push to enforce work requirements. They're not talking about. In, in, this, in this headline, they're not talking about the mom and three kids at home, or maybe even the dad and three kids. They're talking about people who are able-bodied, childless, and the headline is lamenting that 77% of those able-bodied, childless, not working people getting food stamps might be cut out of food stamps um, if they... Um, uh, if these changes go into place, which is kind of like, yeah, that would be the point. The point of these changes is if you're able-bodied, and you don't have dependent children at home to take care of, you know, you ought to, maybe you ought to be thinking about uh, working and instead of uh, relying on food stamps. And I just want to um, tell you uh, the quickest of stories. And I, I, in several times I've given speeches, I give a lot of speeches, and I, I love talking to groups of all kinds, but I mentioned a story of my grandmother. And I just want to tell this story in the context of this kind of change in federal law. My grandmother, leaving a lot of detail, but my grandmother, my father's mother, was a, um, turned out, 
through really no fault of her own, ending up being a single mom. She uh, had been working, she'd worked, she'd been actually a principal at a high school, and then she married my grandfather. They had seven kids right in a row, and then after the seventh kid was born, my grandfather abandoned the family. He literally could not handle the idea of trying to work and supply a home and food on the table for his wife and seven children, so he just left. So my grandmother had to feed and raise the kids on her own, and she did. This was long before there was anything like the uh, government assistance programs we have today. You know, SNAP didn't exist, food stamps didn't exist. The whole Great Society thing hadn't started. So she, for about a six-month period, did get uh, some county benefits where she was living. They had county, you know, help for the poor or something, and she did it for about six months. But she told her seven kids, you don't rely on other people to get by in life. You find a way. So she began working at night. So she had these seven kids at home. She worked overnight washing dishes in an institution. This is a college-educated woman who had previously been a high school principal, but she had to take the job she could fit into her schedule that she was able to get at that point. So she washed dishes overnight, uh, came home in the morning, got the seven kids rolling, got them off to school, and she did this for years and years and years. Her seven children all finished high school, six of them finished college, one of them went on to become a doctor, but the real point of it is she encouraged her kids this idea of self-reliance, that you don't live off of others. Now, she did have a small uh, presence of family in the area who helped her a little bit. She was active in her church. I think some people from her church helped her uh, from time to time. But the point is, this is the kind of society uh, that America really is. I'm guessing everyone listening to this, you have in your family stories in your family similar to this, or people you know, people in your, your own communities and churches have these kind of stories. We used to think as a culture and as a society that it was a good thing to embrace the concept of self-reliance, to understand you were responsible to make your way, and then to move forward as you made your way in, in the world and to teach the next generation of your children and other children that this is what America is about is hard work and the work ethic and personal responsibility and you work hard and you earn money and you take care of yourself you're not intending the, the goal of life is not to find a way for someone else to care for all of your needs and what has happened in America, and, and the other thing, by the way, all her seven of her children uh, grew up, married, stayed married. None of them got into the, you know, the continual generational pattern of marrying and divorcing and leaving the kids and all that. They all had, they were blessed all with uh, seven, all kids, seven kids had marriages and their own children and moved on and were not on the welfare rolls. But that spirit of thinking that Churches, community organizations, family band together and help each other. This is consistent with the American spirit. What the left has accomplished doing in this country from the time of the Great Society programs beginning in the 1960s and the development and embellishment of programs is to create a culture of dependency. The culture of dependency feeds the power of the federal government. It feeds a collectivist mindset that the left is working so hard to instill in this country. It feeds the idea that if you get more and more people helplessly, dependently, reliant on government, then number one, you can trust and count on the votes of those people forever, those people who rely on government benefits 
and don't really need them are going to keep on voting for the people who will let them have those government benefits that they don't need. And they're not going to vote for the people who are saying we've got to cut spending, we've got to cut these programs, we've got to encourage people to find their way, that self-reliant American spirit. So this thing that Trump is doing, he's not dropping a bunch of people instantly off the uh, SNAP program rolls, but he is saying we have to again be checking, are these people eligible? Do they need to be on this? Could they be working? Can you move them again towards working versus, versus reliance on the government? This is another example of restoration of America, restoration of the idea of America, restoration of that spirit of self-reliant, hard work, making your way in life. It's not, and the other thing that happens when you have government assistance programs cut back is that private charity and churches step up. Part of my grandmother's story did include her church being very helpful to her. And actually my father used to say at Christmas time in their home with these seven kids that um, she, my grandmother would say to them, you know, you need to find, at Christmas time she'd say, we need to find a way to help the poor. And you know, this is, my father would kind of, at this point, as an adult, he looked back and say, you know, what was she possibly thinking? We were the poor. But, you know, she even instilled that, that, that spirit of generosity and caring for each other and looking out for your neighbor. These kind of things are cultural ideas that belong in the cultural milieu of America. They belong in the fabric of America. Big government assistance programs create all the wrong incentives. They inspire people to keep voting for, for whoever will just give them more benefits. They disincentivize people to begin to think of themselves as self-reliant and possibly capable of moving forward in life and becoming self-reliant. So these are America-changing things, the concepts underlying the idea of reducing food stamp recipients, or at least double-checking, do they really need these, and can we find a way to move these people toward work? There's always going to be the argument that it'd be so much easier for them if you didn't take them off, to let them keep collecting benefits, but ultimately the kindest thing you can do for someone is treat them as though you respect them as an individual, you respect the idea that they can make it on their own. Obviously we're not talking about people who are mentally or physically disabled and unable to work. That's a whole separate category. We're talking about able-bodied people and the the idea that we as a country inspire them to believe in themselves, to move forward, to find a way to become self-reliant. This is a kind and good and noble thing to treat people with that kind of respect. Respect for their individual abilities, worth, potential, and purpose in life. And one more topic I want to hit very quickly. You may have seen the story, maybe you didn't, but uh, in New York City, we have the quickest video. Matt the Wonderful is going to show you this video. But this happened on the streets of Harlem in New York City. Uh, this is a police officer who has stopped some driver, and he is, appears to be arresting him. And I want you to watch what the people around this police officer are doing to him. The video has no context what preceded it or followed it. It happened over the sweltering weekend. An officer in Harlem who's making an arrest has buckets of water and then the bucket thrown at him. He doesn't appear to react to it. It's not acceptable for anyone to resist arrest. It's not acceptable for anyone to interfere with the NYPD when they're effectuating an arrest. Uh, throwing things at an NYPD officer is not only not acceptable, it can lead to charges. The police union released a statement saying our anti-cop lawmakers have gotten their wish. The NYPD is now frozen. It's the end result of the torrent of bad policies and anti-police rhetoric that has been streaming out of City Hall for years. Okay, the reason I wanted to play that as my last little closeout today, Mayor Giuliani 
former mayor of New York City from 1994 to 2001 had the broken windows theory. And the basic idea was if you stop small crime, then, and you reestablish the rule of law, no more jumping the turnstile at the subway, that's a crime, you get stopped, you get arrested. No more throwing rocks at, at uh, windows and buildings and breaking windows. Stop the small crime, re reinstate the idea of law and order, and you will bring down big crime. And that's exactly what happened under Giuliani's term as mayor. de Blasio has had a very, uh, Mayor de Blasio, who, that's who was being interviewed in that clip uh, after the incident with these, and by the way, the incident with people throwing water, buckets of water on police officer, that's just one incident that there are many occurring. This has become like a thing to do in New York City now in the lower income areas. If they have a police officer stopping someone, people get buckets of water and throw them on the officer. They think, well, I'm not going to get arrested for water. I'm not hurting him. I'm going to throw the bucket at him. But then this idea of lawlessness as a norm, lawlessness as kind of a, well, you got to let them blow off steam. After In Baltimore, after the riots, or during the riots in Baltimore, uh, they end up having one, the, the mayor, I believe it was, or the chief of police, it was the mayor saying essentially, well, I just you got to let them burn off their steam, got to let them burn down buildings, got to let them burn cars. This idea that somehow letting people engage in things like violence or even throwing water on an officer or attacking an officer is something somehow necessary all it does is lead to more lawlessness and there is a, there was a statement out by the New York City Benevolent Association president Patrick Lynch who also called out the city's leadership specifically pointing fingers at de Blasio and at the New York State Assembly saying there's been messages and messages out from the New York State lawmakers the Democrats there Democrat mayor of, of New York City de Blasio criticizing police just uh, demeaning police officers, calling out police officers unnecessarily, criticizing them, labeling them. And the result is the public felt comfortable. These people in Harlem, again, that wasn't the only incident, felt comfortable in this kind of minor um, disrespect, disobedience, throwing water at an officer, pouring buckets of water over his head while he's trying to arrest someone. None of the officers have responded yet. None of the officers have even tried to arrest these people. But this little idea of lawlessness is somehow okay or necessary or something we have to put up with little lawlessness leads to big lawlessness which is the reverse message of what uh, mayor giuliani did in new york city when he said you know what you can't even break windows anymore you just got to start following the law and that my friends is my show today for america can we talk i love talking with you every week and i love to close the show telling you why, why the stories we talk about today matter to you the first story we had Boris Johnson, UK Prime Minister, we the people everywhere must fight to be heard. This took years to get the MP and the ruling class to listen to the people. Must fight to be heard by the ruling classes. Boris Johnson is becoming Prime Minister tomorrow because of Brexit. Brexit demanded by the people. Prime Minister May dragged her feet. EU and Brussels were defiant and uncooperative in accommodating Brexit. Prime Minister May forced to resign for failure to execute on Brexit. Brits want their sovereignty back. They want their culture back. Sound familiar? We have the Debt Delusions fabulous interview with Congressman and Dr. Uh, Dave Bratt. The Uniparty cannot repeal the laws of economics. Eventually, this massive debt and deficit spending will catch up with us. The federal government spends too much. It borrows too much. Debt ceiling, 
Fiscal discipline is a farce. All they're doing is raising the debt limit. They're not solving the problem. The prospect of a collapsing financial house of cards may be no more than one or two crises away. Americans must be more, more responsible than their elected officials. They must demand spending reductions and entitlement reform. Government, you have to tie the idea of the household finance that you're responsible with, make that be paralleled in Washington and the Washington, the nation's household. On rethinking food stamps or SNAP, in 2017 alone, 43 million Americans on food stamps. At the same time, millions of unfilled job openings from 2017 to now. Swelling ranks of dependent Americans create a weaker country and a stronger collectivist mindset in Washington. Something is wrong with this picture. Food stamps are to be a band-aid, a compassionate temporary support. It is not compassionate to deprive people of the joy and dignity of work and reward. Freedom and the work ethic, that's America. Socialism requires dependency and weakness. And this is exactly why the Democrats keep pushing these programs. And finally, New York City under Blasio, disrespectful citizens in New York City brazenly interfere with the New York Police Department law enforcement activities. This is the product of leftist anti-police attitudes governing large cities. No one wins, no one can prosper in the culture of lawlessness. And that, my friends, is my show for today, America Can We Talk. I want to tell you in closing the show today, I do this show every day, Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, to speak up for this extraordinary, exceptional, experiment in human liberty, which is United States of America. I love your support. I appreciate your listening. I love your emails. I appreciate your comments on Facebook and on YouTube. I urge you to email me at AmericaCanWeTalk at gmail.com. Get on our mailing list, our once a week mailing list with links to the greatest, the, the things during the week I think you might want to read again. And I'll tell you, I do this show because I want to instill more and more people to realize America matters. Talk to you tomorrow. Can we talk truth about America? Can you-